From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And after three weeks of some bitter party infighting and paralysis in the House, we have a new House speaker, finally. It turns out it's a guy named Mike Johnson, who just a week ago, I would venture to say most people had never heard of, conservative backbencher, but who proved to be the white knight of the Republican Party, who, who suddenly unified the party in this remarkable way. We can talk about that. But he certainly comes into office with a hefty challenge here, already picking a fight with the Biden administration over Ukraine aid, faced with all of these requests for emergency spending, and three weeks to go before the government shuts down if they don't pass some kind of stopgap funding measure yet again. There's a hell of a lot on his plate here to tackle with very little time, very little experience for this speaker who's really brand new. He hasn't even been in Congress that long. So a lot to dissect here. Joining me for that conversation is Aiden Quigley, the appropriations reporter at CQ Roll Call. Thanks for being here, Aiden. Yep. Thanks for having me, as always. And Peter Cohn, the deputy news editor at CQ Roll Call. Thanks again, Pete. Thanks for having me, David. It's been too long. Glad to have you back. So before we get into the agenda, we, we should just pause a moment at the new speaker because this really was remarkable, I thought. Wednesday morning after all of this fighting, they went through Steve Scalise, they went through Jim Jordan, who was deemed too much of a conservative firebrand, and then they went through Tom Emmer, who was deemed too much of a moderate, finally settling on Mike Johnson of Louisiana not a household name. And it was remarkable, Aiden, you were there day and night at the Capitol covering it. Just striking to me how all of a sudden, everybody rallied around him, not a single Republican defection on the floor. They were done. They were ready to elect. I mean, the transformation there was was pretty striking. Yeah, it did happen pretty fast where he went from questions about if anyone could get to 217 to you know, all the Republicans coming together to elect Mike Johnson. I think part of it is kind of fatigue. It had been 20-something days. And the fact that, you know, they wanted to get back to work and, and get back to the appropriations bills, as we saw Energy Water passed this week, uh, and, you know, kind of get their agenda as back on track as possible after the past, you know, three weeks of, of just interpersonal drama, basically. Yeah. I mean, I almost kind of think, given how everybody hated each other for so long in the in this fractious Republican conference, that it was it was the fact that Johnson hadn't been around enough long enough to even offend enough people to, to be a problem so that everybody could rally around him. It, it was remarkable that, that that all of a sudden they joined forces like that. But let's let's get to his the agenda now, Pete, because um He's got a lot on his plate with so little time. Where to begin? I suppose he has to deal right away with this with this emergency spending request that, that President Biden wants, and he's already picked a fight there. We saw on Fox News where he's saying he wants to move a standalone Israel aid package without the Ukraine money that Biden really wants. So a couple of things about Mike Johnson. I mean, you know, I think I'm learning about him just as the rest of the world is, as everyone in this call is. And, you know, it is it's pretty interesting. You know, he's not, we cover mostly, you know, on our team, we cover the money issues, the fiscal issues. 
Mike Johnson has not been a big player on those issues because he's not been on those committees. He's, he's on armed services, which has a big role in the defense authorization bill, which is influential in ultimately in the defense budgeting process. And I, I think there's some instructive lessons you can pull out of of his record. As a Republican study committee chairman, he put out a budget, an alternative budget resolution that never really went anywhere, but it's it's actually like a it's a pretty orthodox Republican conservative budget plan. It's got a lot of similarities to the proposals you've seen over the years from some higher profile players like Paul Ryan, like now the 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 current House Budget Chairman Jody Arrington, calling for a balanced budget, uh, calling for changes to the the major the signature entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. These are things that, of course. They will get killed for if they talk about publicly, right? But these are all pretty orthodox, conservative, Republican talking points. So he's kind of right there. Higher defense spending. He's right there. He's got Barksdale Air Force Base in his district. He's been outspoken and very influential in trying to get federal dollars to the military and to and to his district. So this is not a slash and burn Republican spending conserved. Now, on the domestic side, yes, he's right where they all are on that. At the expense of um, the, the domestic budget, he wants to grow the military budget. That's where a lot of a lot of the Republicans are. That's probably where the, the vast majority of House Republicans are right now. The debt ceiling deal, he was for it. He voted with Kevin McCarthy, Patrick McHenry, and all the rest on the, and all the rest of, you know, the swamp players as Matt Gates and, and some of the other uh, hardliners like to, to call it. Um, he voted for that bill. He was very pragmatic about that. He said the economy will go off a cliff if we don't vote for this, this bill. And so, you know, he supported the spending caps in that bill that are a lot higher than a lot of the conservatives want. Now, they all seem to be giving him a pass on this. And, um, you know, he said he wants to pass a, a CR, a continuing resolution, that goes at least through jet through the middle of January, maybe through even the middle of April. But he hasn't said, he's, you know, he hasn't come out hard and saying we've got to slash domestic spending by 30% as part of that. Um, you know, ultimately, he'll probably get there and put some of those conditions on there, similar to what Kevin McCarthy put in his CR. Yeah, and he did say he did say in his t- TV interview that he he wanted a CR with conditions. We don't know what those conditions yeah, are. Yeah, and I, you know he'll he'll prob it'll probably be very similar. Kevin McCarthy did not have too many plays in the playbook that he could call on, and Mike Johnson has a very similar playbook. There really aren't too many options here. Um, you know, you've got to 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 rally your troops behind you. You've got to pass a bill in the House that is a very kind of, you know, hardline Republican party line uh, bill. You've, you know, you've got, you've got to at least try to pass it. Otherwise, you look weak and you look like you're just rolling over to the Democrats right away. Now, ultimately, they'll probably get there. A lot of people are, are talking about, well, Mike Johnson, he voted against Kevin McCarthy's ultimate CR, you know, the one that he needed Democrats to, to, to pass with. Okay, fine, but they didn't need his vote there. <laughs> they had... You know, almost, I, I think they had 300 something votes on that bill. So the debt ceiling vote, I think, is more important to look at, as is all of his votes on defense spending over the years. And the, the thing he said about the Israeli aid package last night, 
also, again, very much in line with where his caucus has been for months now. They have not wanted to to pass a gigantic supplemental for Ukraine. Right. Uh, and, and all of these other things. Now, the Biden administration, they've asked for $162 billion in unoffset emergency spending. A lot of things in that bill, if you look at what some of the critics are saying on you know, middle of the road types who are, are even saying this. Um, you know, there's a lot of things in there that are not an emergency that have been known about for months, if not years. So I, I think everything Mike Johnson is saying is not some sort of radical new position. And it's, it's actually pretty, you, you can pretty fairly well have expected it. Now, you know, the interesting thing about what he said about Israel aid last night was that he wants to find offsets for it. So, that's going to be, I, I'm not entirely sure because there's a lot of um, rescissions you can make. You can grab a lot of things that have been proposed over over the last year that just haven't become law yet. A lot of things, but the problem with rescissions is a lot of it is rescinding spending that wasn't going to get spent anyway. So they, it doesn't actually produce any savings. So that's going to be interesting to see where some of the conservatives in the house are, what type of offsets they're talking about here. Because if they're just kind of the typical, you know, like, oh, I'm going to take children's health insurance program spending that was never going to get spent anyway and rescind that, then, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how much rope the conservatives, um, you know, give him on on that. And then, yeah. of course, <laughs> then you got to deal with the Senate, which is a whole other story. But, but he does you know, have to find all- he does have to find fourteen billion dollars in savings of some sort to make good on that pledge. To, yeah, to- well, we don't know. I mean, you know, they've got all these rescissions that they've been trying to use in the appropriations process that the conservatives are all for. They, they just think we should do them anyway and not use them yeah. to offset other spending. So you know, we'll, we'll see if they can just kind of pull some of those out that they don't may not need anymore, um, and use that for the uh, Israel package. But again, nothing truly shocking in the positions that Mike Johnson has been taking. And he actually seems over the, you know, over time, if you look at his record on fiscal issues, fairly orthodox, fairly kind of uh, predictable on some of these things, and right in line with practically with Kevin McCarthy. On fiscal issues, yeah. Yeah. And to follow up on that idea, you know, I think as Pete pointed out, they, they have a lot of similarities. It will be interesting to see when November 17th comes around, if they'll tactically will be similar. Kevin McCarthy was really trying to go out of his way to avoid a shutdown at all costs. And it appears that Mike Johnson will do the same thing based on his early messaging, You know, acknowledge, even acknowledging that they will need a CR in his letter before he became speaker when CRs are so uh, unliked in the Republican conference, I think is a sign that he will also want to avoid a shutdown but how hard he pushes for whatever these conditions are, you know, will be a factor when the Senate and White House, you know, will not go for border policy changes on a CR or huge cuts if that's what Republicans end up pursuing. Yeah, and it it was probably wise of him to get that policy agenda letter out before he was even uh, in office, right? Because it it did it did clue everybody in as to what his intentions are, so that it doesn't come as a surprise that he's 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 already ready to do a CR. Uh, and it was a little surprising to me that he would be willing to consider one through next April. <laughs> uh, because the, some conservatives had criticized the idea of a long-term CR because you're extending sort of the Biden-Pelosi spending, they called it, uh, if you do it that long. they Because they wanted to see much, a lot of cuts, not, not extending the current spending. But he was willing to consider 
uh, a CR all the way through next April. But he did say last night a CR would have to come with conditions, and we don't know what those conditions are. So he's left himself some wiggle room there. He's open to negotiation. Not much time to put this together with three weeks, and he's barely got a staff, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't think he really uh, – I will say you mentioned that letter. That that did show kind of a remarkable level of savvy, again, for a guy who's not on any of the key money committees. Um, you know, he he really sort of – that letter demonstrated a, a working knowledge of what was happening in the appropriations process. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was kind of kept under wraps. He put it out on, on Monday of this week and, um, you know, it didn't really get unearthed kind of until maybe 24, 36 hours later or something like that. Um, but you know, I, I, I don't think he doesn't want a CR that goes to April because of the impact on the Pentagon. Yeah. And most of his co- his conference is going to be with him on that. And, you know, to your point about extending the Pelosi policies, it's the same thing on the other side with the conservatives. They're not going to want that either. January is much, much, much more likely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, I think, yeah, and it was also really interesting that he was on the floor voting all day yesterday and on the energy and water bill. Which speakers don't do that. Speakers don't go, don't vote on, on you know, garden variety legislation. Um, so, you know, he was out there participating in this process. And here he is. It's going to be fascinating to watch, I think. I mean, because here he is part of the top four congressional leadership now thrown in there with, with uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, all have long, you know, distinguished records. This guy has never even chaired a committee before. He's only been in Congress, I think, since 2017. He just doesn't have the experience to go up, you know, and and make, you know, lead an entire caucus. He's just sort of untested here. Um, that's what's going to be fascinating to see is, is can he really deliver now? Uh, you know, that's, I think that's the big, the big question mark, right? Yeah, that is a big question. You know, we'll have to kind of see how it goes. But I think he's going to, I'm sure he'll hire a really strong staff that has leadership experience to try to make up for that. And, you know, he's from the same delegation as a majority leader, Steve Scalise, who does have this experience that you're talking about. So he'll likely lean on Scalise a little bit to help, uh, you know, move, navigate these these relationships, which Scalise has you know, lengthy experience with, with those players, uh, you know, being in house leadership for so many years. So we will have to see how he kind of navigates these situations, but between the staff and majority, you know, the majority leader, I think, I think that he'll likely be able to figure it out. But again, we'll have to wait and see. And meanwhile, he's, he's plowing ahead on appropriations. One day after being elected speaker, the House did pass another one of their appropriations bills, the Energy Water Bill, flew through there the next day. So that was progress. So the House has passed five now of the 12 annual bills. And he's, he's planning to do three bills next week, I think, Aiden, uh, and then f- finish the rest in the next couple weeks to show that the House is passing their bills. Makes no difference, though, in terms of the funding is going to run out. They can't possibly get them conferenced with the Senate in time before funding runs out on November 17 is the deadline. So they've got to work on this on this stopgap measure. It's going to be a tough road. How, how does he play that? Yeah, so it will be tough, especially when we have a few bills that it's really difficult to see any path for passage in the House, particularly the agriculture bill, which we already saw go down by a large margin where if you get rid of the cuts that the Freedom Caucus and others want, you know, to appease the moderates and get them back on board, you'll probably lose 
you know, the Freedom Caucus, if they continue to treat appropriations the way they did under McCarthy, if they decide to change their tactics and give Johnson a lot wider, you know, a lot more leeway, maybe they will, you know, back off the demands that they were making. But that just kind of goes against their history, their record, who they are, you know, ideologically. So it's really going to be difficult to see that bill. And then also commerce, justice, science, and labor, age, education, are, have not even advanced out of subcommittee. They're running into huge issues with, you know, conservatives wanting significant more cuts, which would get moderates off board. And, and you know, Andrew Clyde wants to really drastically cut FBI funding, which is not a popular position uh, among many Republicans. There's just a million issues with these bills. And, you know, it looks like right now that appropriators are likely to try to move them to the floor without a markup. But again, it's hard. if you can't get out of subcommittee, it's hard for me to see how it gets to two seventeen. Yeah, I mean, Pete, um, Pete they passed they passed five bills, but they saved the toughest bills for last. These are all partisan bills with no Democratic support. Can they even get the rest of these bills passed on the floor? Yeah, they'll get the leg- legislative branch bill done next week. No one, no one's going to vote against capping uh, the the pay the member pay raise for the. Yeah. 16th year in a row. That, that's a tough, that's tough a tiny thing to bill that's... to vote against. Although there's some members that, you know, accurately point out that inflation has been um, kind of a beast for the last 16 years, uh, particularly in the last two years. So, um, you know, maybe it's time for a raise for some of these people. Some, not all. <laughs> but, um, yeah, they'll get the wedge branch, branch shield done. Transportation HUD, um, I think they can do that one. I think they can. There's so many earmarks in that for members uh, uh, of the Republican Party um, and some pretty tough policy in there. I mean, they, they went after some earmarks in um, in that bill for Democrats that have, Republicans have just, you know, lambasted as these woke projects. Um, it's got a lot of red meat in there. It's got a lot of, you know, things in there the Republicans want. I think they can probably do that one. Interior environment, same, a lot of red meat in that one, too. Um, now, you know, the question is going to be, um, are they going to make additional cuts to these bills in line with the McCarthy agreement he made last month with the conservatives who were threatening to vote against uh, the CR? Now, they voted against the CR anyway, so it didn't, maybe that deal is out the window now, but energy and water bill yesterday uh, had an extra billion dollars. They had to slice out of that bill as part of that deal. So- that deal is sort of held. There was some, but you know, again, those cuts were, they had to make additional cuts in the agriculture bill, which did not help whatsoever, probably made it worse for that bill. So there may be a revaluation going on right now about, you know, do, are they going to go back and, I mean, the labor HHS education bill that already had major problems as Aiden, Aiden alluded to. Now they're going to go and find another 20, $25 billion in cuts. And that bill, you basically give that bill zero chance it already has no earmarks in it so you know they per- deliberately axed all earmarks from the labor hhs bill you know already a very difficult bill to pass you take all the earmarks out even harder and now they're going to cut another 20 billion out of that so um i guess it's not clear I, I, now whether know, they'll will, they will whether they will make more cuts right Right. Well, yeah, that, that's the question is, I mean, there, people are making noises now that maybe that deal does not necessarily apply anymore. I mean, it didn't really get them anywhere. It didn't get Kevin McCarthy anywhere, clearly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, so I, 
and the top Repu- Republican appropriators. We haven't heard from Kay Granger yet, the chairwoman, uh, on this, but you know she's kept her powder dry on a lot of these issues, except for Jim Jordan. She was pretty clear she didn't want Jim Jordan to be speaker. Um, but you know Tom Cole, the transportation HUD chairman, has basically said, "No, I don't think so. I'm not going to make any more cuts to my bill." Um, Mike Simpson was talking about the Interior Environment Subcommittee Chairman. His bill is on the floor next week, we think. And um, you know, before, during the Kev, the McCarthy deal era, let's let's call it, he was talking about another four billion dollars in cuts out of his bill. He basically was talking about he's like, I'm going to have to eviscerate most of the programs in my bill. And you know, just this week, I think you know he was kind of backing off that a little bit too. So um, if they want to pass these bills. They may have to uh, not do some of those those cuts. And the question is whether the whether the right wing is okay with that, and all of a sudden will will cede ground on the spending cuts they want. Right? I mean, that's that's the big unknown. Well, again, did it did it help them? They you know they pat they cut three, an extra three billion out of the ag FDA bill. Did it help pass that bill? No. No, but some of them would say we'd rather not pass anything and just let the government shut down if that you know. As in, instead of if they're so determined to want spending cuts that they can put up a fight if they want to. So I think that's the question: is how how much hardball are they still willing to still eager to play here, or are they, or now with a new speaker, are they willing to cede ground and and let these bills go? And I think that's what we don't really know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I would think they'll, they'll still be pushing for their cuts because that's who they are. That's what they believe. That's you know what they've been fighting for all year. But it is probably safe to say that Mike Johnson will get some more leeway than Kevin McCarthy, who they just had zero trust in, would advance any conservative priorities that they're in line with, basically. Uh, so we'll see. But I, I do think that the Freedom Caucus will still be pushing for more cuts to these bills. They've been talking about how the decisions are, are basically not real cuts yeah, you know, yeah, you know, they bolt to spending, et cetera, et cetera. So it would be a surprise to me if they just kind of folded uh, at this point of the appropriations process. But we'll see. I think then, David, I think we need to talk about the Senate real quick because yeah, the, you know, the Senate has been pretty going after the House pretty hard about how dysfunctional it is, and um, how many appropriations bills has the Senate passed? Right. <laughs> It looks like they'll pass their three bill package uh, this coming week, so they can take credit for three bills. And um, but yeah, it's slow going. It's it's been a mess on both sides, really. So um, Chuck Schumer keeps pleading for bipartisanship, um, but it's been a struggle, even even in his own chamber, as we saw with this package that stalled for weeks uh, as Republicans sought all these votes on amendments. So. To, yeah. to be fair, you know, Pete does make a good point. The Senate is behind, but they have advanced all the bills out of subcommittee. Out of, sorry, out of the committee. And it's way more difficult to pass bills in the Senate where you need 60 votes. Right. House right. where you could do things on party lines. And uh, the wider point is definitely accurate and well taken. But I, I think the reason why there's been so much focus on the House dysfunction is that it is typically easier for them to pass their bills. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I look. I I will say that uh, I've been watching appropriations bills for a long time, and uh, the Senate for the last twenty years or so has had an extremely difficult time passing any appropriations bills. They've gone years without passing a single appropriations yeah. bill. So yeah, 
I just wanted to make that point because there is just a lot of, um, you know, the house has been a, you know, rightly has been the focus of a lot of attention in the last few months. But it is just interesting to point out that the Senate, I think, how many weeks has the Senate been trying to pass that that three bill mini bus? Yeah, I lost track. So it's, <laughs> it's, been a long, it's been a long time. Yeah. It's, it's, like the beginning of when we got back from August recess, I think, is when we started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like it's been about two months they've been trying to pass that. So look, nothing, I, I understand all the Senate's challenges, nothing against the Senate. But you know, just the last thing I'll point out is we've also talked a lot about the House and its challenges with the supplemental and the Ukraine aid and all, and all that. Um, that's not going to be a cakewalk in the Senate either. I mean, there's this assumption that it's all kumbaya in the Senate. Everybody's a lockstep on, on you know, passing a $162 billion unoffset supplemental spending package. I just, I do not think that's the case. Oh, no, Republicans don't like all that money. No, yeah. Yeah, it's not just that. I mean, this, this new $56 billion tranche that the administration put out this past week I mean, I, pe- there were Democratic sources of ours who were openly just a, f- a couple of months, like even a month ago, Aiden, correct me if I'm wrong, who were openly sort of, not openly, but behind the scenes saying, I mean, come on, this child care funding, it's never going to get through the $16 billion in child care. I mean, that's been a known issue. I'm not saying it's not an important thing to fix. You know, child care acts as a parent. Uh, I'm well aware of the challenges with child care in this country. But to, to lump that in as part of an emergency supplemental spending package that has to get done, it just it seems like it's not going to pass the smell test for a lot of um, members who are going to say, look, this was a pandemic era kind of one-time cash infusion. These were these were child care providers who were going under at the time because nobody was sending their kids outside, right? And now they're going to... Add, add another $16 billion in unoffset emergency spending outside of the regular spending caps, it, it, it just seems like a really, really hard hill to climb. And that doesn't even get into the you know, national security stuff, which you'll have a hearing about next week with Defense Secretary Austin and Secretary of State Blinken. And um, there's a lot of things, frankly, in that $106 billion national security supplemental that a lot of people are going to question whether or not that's an emergency that has to get done right away. Not all of it just goes directly to sustaining the Ukrainian, you know, resistance fighters. So I think we'll hear more about that next week too. Yeah. And on, on childcare, you know, huge priority for both, uh, you know, appropriations chair and the Senate, Patty Murray and the ranking member of the house, Rosa DeLauro. And yeah, I've really been pushing to, you know, a lot of children will lose their childcare with these pandemic eras. Uh, spending runs out is is a big selling point on that. But there's no Republican support that's clear. You know, and especially with Republicans in control of the House, it's really difficult to see that uh, getting to the finish line unless they make some kind of deal that's not clear on some other issue that is part of Republicans. But it's really going to be a tall hill to climb. Yeah, uh, disaster rate. Disaster rate is a sleeper. Disaster rate is a sleeper. There's a lot of stuff in the administration's. $23.5 billion disaster aid package that I think is going to have Republican support. Maybe, you know, not all of it, maybe not even close to all of it, but that's a sleeper. That's definitely one to watch that I think you could get some traction on. But a lot of that other stuff in there, I don't know about the, you know, the, uh, the energy stuff is a little bit, I don't un- understand why 
that would not be part of the regular appropriations process unless you're just trying to spend more money. <laughs> and then if Johnson makes good on this bill to do a standalone bill on Israel aid, $14 billion, and send it over to the Senate, I have to believe that the Senate is going to be eager to attach Ukraine aid to it because you've got the leadership on both parties in the Senate wanting Ukraine money. So we're going to see a big fight between Johnson and the Senate over over how quickly to move Ukraine aid and whether whether the the Israeli aid has to go alone or whether they they can broaden that package. Um, I think that's probably going to be the first big fight he's going to have on his hands. You could also do less than, I mean, there's 45 billion in there for Ukrainian defense, just just the defense piece of that. So arguably the more popular piece of that package for Republicans. But what's what's the, who's to say you can't do less than that? Right. I mean, there's now, all kinds of do, options, but I mean, that's- I mean, originally, originally, the administration asked for 20, 20 billion, I think. And so, you know, now they've kind of upped it thinking that now if, oh, if the Republicans- come to their senses and only agree to 20 billion, that it'll be this kind of huge concession on their part, when in reality, that's only what they were asking for to begin with. So, Well, I think you know, the latest request is for a longer time period than what the what the request was. Sure, sure. You always, you always ask for far more than you think you're actually going to get. I'm surprised, frankly, they didn't do that in their initial request back in August. I think they were trying to be a little more realistic back in August, but you know, now they figure, why not? Now we're going to ask for sixty, and if we only get twenty, that'll be, um, you know, Republicans can claim they they got their pound of flesh. Well, he's got a lot on his plate. We're going to see. It's going to be a busy three weeks now uh, as we approach the funding deadline. But that's all the time we have for today. If you like what you hear here, you should subscribe to the CQ Budget newsletter. You can find that at CQ.com. It hits your inbox every morning. The Congress is in session. My thanks again to Aidan Quigley and Peter Cohn for joining me. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Great to be here, David. And thank you all for listening. You can find all of our budget coverage at CQ.com or RollCall.com. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. See you next time. <laughs>